Hello and welcome. I am Haney. And I'm Simon. We are knee-deep in tech covering the latest from the IT industry with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 166, recorded on December 7th, 2021. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on kneedeepintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. And today we will be talking about Azure AD and new improvements there and to technologies that use them. We will go through news within both Config Manager and Intune, since I haven't been here for a while, so we have to catch up on that. We'll also talk about news in Defender for Endpoints and a hack that turned out not to be a hack. Uh, we'll then continue with some Kubernetes and a lot of news there. Databases, load testing, I like the sound of that, as well as uh, some VPN news that have gone GA. But first, or first and foremost, Alexander isn't here. Not that we miss him. Uh, and not <laughs> that he misses not. us either. No, of course no. not. Uh, He's eating, so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's not going to miss us. <laughs> no, exactly. When he has food, he knows his priorities. Mm-hmm. So I actually came up with a quote that will introduce our focus segment <laughs> of the day. So we will now be talking about a somewhat structured way of doing whatever you like. And with those words, Haney, please take it away. So... If you can do a bit of guessing of what that might be that we're going to be talking about, but we're going to be talking about DevOps. And there's been some talk previously about DevOps here in Needy Pin Tech. But uh, since this is something that I work with daily at my company, uh, we decided to bring it on one more time and just kind of see what other aspects we could be talking about. So... What's your kind of take on DevOps? Do you do it or what comes to mind to you first about that? Yeah, uh, and, and like we talked about before starting the recording, I think you, you actually work with it. Me and Alexander are in two parts of the IT industry where we really are still trying to figure out how to do DevOps with data and with digital workplace and, and security. And yeah. there is data ops and there is sec ops as well. But to me, it's more of the mindset and the culture really rather than the tooling. And I know that you will talk about all of those aspects. But but to me, it's, it's really about what I started off with. It's ensuring that you can try things, that you fail mm-hmm. fast, uh, and that you continuously are adding value. Uh, and that's something we, we can apply on almost anything and then when it comes to tooling well that's where especially i i have to say are lacking some bits today yeah i think that's actually quite a good good definition of devops and the thing is that if you go reading about devops you will find as many definitions as there are pretty much texts out there (laughs) yeah but all of those will probably talk uh around these same topics. So you are bringing the development side, the software development side, and then the infrastructure operations side closer together and making a collaboration between those two. And of course, that means that you are talking about the culture 
So people, how they work together. You're talking about the process of how do you actually do things. And then you're also talking about the technology and tooling. And the funny thing here is, in my opinion, that these three also affect each other. So it's not mm -hmm. like one is working without the other in any way. No. So it's always that you have to find the balance between all three of these. Have you been able to find any tooling for the side that you work with, the endpoint management and security side? Yeah, I actually, I'm an architect, you know. So I yes. tell people what they should develop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, yeah. So I again, I'm driving a lot of the culture and, and the mm -hmm. innovation from a strategic point of view in, in my company. Uh, and I actually have two colleagues that are working mm -hmm. on Dev, one is working with Azure DevOps for mm -hmm. Intune. So where he oh, is actually cool. developing, yeah. So he's working on a DevOps pipeline mm -hmm. where you can do like changes in a development environment, like a separate tenant. And mm -hmm. that will then sync over into production when you mm. do the pipeline or activate the pipeline. Uh, so it, it's, he's using the DevOps tool set mm -hmm. together with, like a dev environment, a production environment to try things and then quickly, if he needs to, revert it. Mm -hmm. uh, and also applies that to application deployment and such. And we do the mm -hmm. same thing with config, a config manager on-prem. So where we're oh. trying to replicate development and production environments because that's really where my side of the industry Mm. are so far behind of both the mm. infrastructure, but especially the, the more modern infrastructure that you work on. Because mm -hmm. many organizations don't have a test environment. They don't have a development environment. <laughs> they have no place where they can fail. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, that can <laughs> or, be a little like sweaty yeah. situations at yeah, some point. So, sort of, sort of. So we're <laughs> getting there, but it's still, I think we, we have the farthest way to go, to be honest. Uh, I yeah. think... As, as you will talk about, you are already doing it. I think that, yeah. that's fantastic. And the data side is getting there because it's not in the same way. Like it, it's people that like structure and, yeah. and f like do things and, and really are more hands-on. I yeah. have to take the blame when something goes down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so... I, I personally work in uh, uh, software development projects mm -hmm. that are done on Azure. And I am actually a data platform MVP. Mm -hmm. So I do have quite a knowledge uh, on the data side as well. And But I have to say, like, more of the processes and tooling are definitely in place for the software side. Mm -hmm. And there's ways to do things in, on the data side as well, but it's a little more tricky there. And so I think that's why it's... Uh, more prevalent in the software development side and things like that. And so really, if we think about all the different DevOps uh, tooling and parts that are included in there, I think kind of the part that you were discussing that is easiest to start with is automation, doing, for yeah. example, CI-CD pipelines. So continuous integration and continuous uh, either delivery or deployment. Continuous deployment is quite tricky. <laughs> So um, it is most likely most people are doing continuous delivery in some yep. way and not deployment yet. 
And so this would be any means in which you create pipelines where you, for example, automate the process of building your application, testing it, uh, taking it then to your environment, deploying it there, and then even monitoring and so forth. So you kind of have this whole life cycle of the deployment process. And when we are able to automate that, we're of course able to do that more frequently to deploy the application. And also we can verify because if we have built-in tests and things like that, we're able to verify that it is also of better quality. And so we end up with this situation where we're able to get really good quality deployments, but in a faster amount of time. Mm -hmm. But the thing is also that when we do these nice automations and things like that, we also need to get the people to work, the culture to fit that, that we don't just have these pipelines and then when we find errors, nothing happens. We need to have like processes in place in which way we're going to react to those. And I think that's the aspect that makes DevOps kind of tricky <laughs> because yeah. we have people and people like consistency and it always takes a little bit of time for us to change myself included. I, I like the way I do things. So if somebody tells me to do things differently, it might take a little time. And so that's kind of where the challenging part is there. But a question to you then, because mm -hmm. you are fairly new in the in the IT industry as such. Um, yes. Have you always worked with a DevOps mindset? Or in the beginning of your IT career, did you do it the the old way making air quotes here <laughs> so have you had yes. to go through that change or did you step right, right in into a devops culture no, no. <laughs> i didn't <laughs> <laughs> um i i maybe came in a, a bit of through a unconventional role because the first role I came to was, well, it was a junior consultant role that I came into, yeah. but pretty much what I was going into was architecture projects with yeah. a senior. So I kind of started from the architecture point of view, mm -hmm. which for me actually has fitted really well because I yeah. like to map out the big picture first and then it's easy for me to go into the details. Mm -hmm. If I had gone the other way around, I don't think it had uh, would have fitted me so f well. And I think because I went into working with Azure quite soon, uh, mm -hmm. it just started to feel like there should be a better way to do this than going clicking around in the portal and things like that. And so I got to testing ARM templates quite fast <laughs> and <laughs> some head smashing against the wall <laughs> and the usual. Um, <laughs> they are not easy. <laughs> and then, of course... Uh, then I got into some scripting as well using PowerShell and C Azure CLI and so forth. So I pretty much tested different ways, but I, I don't think I did kind of the full transition until I actually switched to my current job where I'm in a company that focuses solely on DevOps and all of us who work there are DevOps consultants. And so all the projects that we have from customers, they have some kind of DevOps focus and even though like we have 45 consultants, let's say, uh, we all have different kind of focus areas and strengths and we're interested in different things and all, all we do different things, but there's always kind of the underlying DevOps angle there. 
And so some might be working more on the people and culture side and just like helping teams to figure out better ways of working. Whereas then, for example, I'm creating quite a bit of Terraform <laughs> in my <laughs> projects currently. So, <laughs> but also doing architecture work on the side as well. So it very much depends, like, because I had this notion before that what if I change to this DevOps role and then I'm just doing one thing over and over again. <laughs> and yeah, that wasn't entirely founded <laughs> on any truth. It's, I feel like it's even more comprehensive than just like doing infrastructure architecture because yeah. you need to understand also all the development processes and so forth to really have kind of the big picture grasp of it. Yeah. And and would you say that that is, like, is it important to have an architectural mindset for doing DevOps? Or can you be very, like, narrow in, in what you do and still be successful in a DevOps-driven project? I, I do think you can, because there are still kind of different, uh, I don't know if it's roles, but kind of... Um, emphasis on different mm -hmm. people on what they do. Of course, the roles kind of within a team, people end up doing a little bit of different things. So not everyone needs to handle everything. And there's always the need for people who are really good with the, like the minute details of setting a pipeline up in a certain way that if I have a more overview view, I don't I can't hold that information because it there would be so many nitty gritty details to hold about Azure and for example Azure DevOps or Jenkins or GitLab or whatever tool you're using there would be so many different nuances. So there's definitely I think room for both there. Mm -hmm. But the thing is that if one is interested, I think there's more opportunity to kind of expand one's horizons on like what to do and uh, what is on one's plate. Yeah. So you got into it by getting to a company which does only this. What, what would be your advice to people that feel, okay, this, this sounds a little bit scary because people <laughs> that have an infrastructure background usually focus on stability and, and making changes yes. continuously sounds dangerous. Yes. So how do you get started? What's the important things? What, what should you learn? Well, if one comes from the infrastructure background, I would say like the first step would be infrastructure as code. And the nice thing is that we have better options than ARM templates, even with <laughs> Azure. <laughs> We have Terraform, we have Bicep, we have, and actually those languages are quite intuitive and easy to pick up. So it, there's not a lot of learning curve to get started. If you like go into it, you'll get up and running really, really fast. Of course, there's things that are kind of good to know when you're working in real life environments, but it's easy to get started. And the one thing one can console <laughs> on is the fact that, well, if you make a breaking change, you just go back to your previous files and push that back in there. It's not like you're going to lose everything. And this will also make it easier for you to have that separate test environment because you can have the same exact configuration. And so you can go ahead and just break your test environment as much as you want. And then you still have the working production environment. 
And so like after now being in this way of doing for quite a while, I'm like, well, it made no sense to do it the other way around. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's I've I've never heard about a single individual who embraced DevOps and then moved back. <laughs> yes. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah. Could could you also because I'm curious and and now I will be very honest with how little I actually understand and know. <laughs> so yes. you, you have Azure DevOps and mm -hmm. you talked about the CI C D pipelines and so on. Mm -hmm. Like very overview. What different tool sets on a, a Microsoft and Azure focused way do you, should you start with? What technologies are there and what do each component do? So if you kind of want to keep the very Azure-focused mindset when you're building your applications, then yes, definitely Azure DevOps is kind of one natural place to go in terms of building your CI-CD pipelines. The other option would be, for example, to use GitHub Actions. It's a little more lightweight and maybe easy to comprehend the entire service in the beginning than with Azure DevOps. So uh, depending on your use case, you might be fine with GitHub Actions as well. And so then it comes down to kind of details. Well, are you what kind of application are you building? Is it a .NET application? Is it a Java application? What is it? You have a specific way of building that application that is dependent on how you... Well, it's dependent on the language that you use. And then... Oftentimes, it is also a little bit language dependent, which tools you have also available for like checking the code quality and things like that. But then there are also uh, tools like uh, Sonar Cloud, etc., that you can plug into your Azure DevOps to really kind of go through, uh, get, for example, uh, security vulner vulnerabilities out of your code, etc. So... It's kind of like, well, you want to choose the pipeline tool that you want to use as for building your pipelines, and then you want to go through like, what steps am I going to need in this that pipeline? So building, testing, etc. And then you need to go in and choose the specific tool for each phase, because not all of that is directly supported in Azure DevOps or GitHub Actions. So you can integrate quite easily as well. So, sorry, I don't have, like, one of answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's the essential bit as well, that find, like, the culture is important. Mm -hmm. You find the appropriate tooling. And then you, the challenging bit is probably finding the right people. Yeah, that too. And the thing is that you can start with just one step. Yeah. You don't have to do everything 100% perfectly from the get-go. Just start with one step. That's where you begin. Anything else you would like to add? Because I, I think we will revisit this so many times because it's a fantastic topic. And I think it, in it many is. cases, embrace what both you and me and Alexander talks a lot about. Like mm -hmm. it, It's somewhat core of what we do. And some of exactly. us have understood that a while longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually able to apply it. And others in our very dysfunctional trio <laughs> just 
we're just happy that we have a work to go to <laughs> and not being run over by someone using a DevOps pipeline. <laughs> I'm sure you will both catch up. <laughs> Thank you. I think that means it is on to the news. <laughs> yes. And we'll probably keep talking about DevOps one way or another. Um, yes. So, have you ever heard about FS Logics? I have heard the term. I'm not sure I term. know what it does. <laughs> Yo. Uh, so, we have now, since a while back, Azure AD support for FS Logics. Uh, and FS Logics, it's a, it's a profile management tool or technique that was acquired mm. by Microsoft uh, late 2018 to handle profiles within Azure Virtual Desktop, especially. But you can use ah. it on any kind of end-user compute platform, such as Citrix, VMware, or whatever. Uh, it used to be quite costly, and now it's free, included in your, or free, it's included in your RDS or similar license. Mm. And the thinking is that you have a VHDX file with your profile data on, let's say, an Azure file share. And whenever you sign into an Azure VM, it mounts the VHDX. And mm. that integrates uh, totally transparently into your operating system. So you can have 100 gigs of profile and it will take under a second to mount it. And, and you can do whatever you like with that profile. And up until now, you have had a requirement for Active Directory to use it. So mm. you haven't been able to do Azure AD joined uh, session hosts, but now mm. we can use that as well. And that's probably one of the last bits and pieces that we need to get to get fully into an Azure AD joined session host. Oh, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and we can continue with Azure AD because I know that you have some interesting updates there as well. But let's first look at something that really, when I first saw it, made me a, just a little angry. <laughs> and then I found just a fantastic a blog post. Yeah, uh, because we now have Kerberos support in Azure AD. And, and the, the face Hayne is doing now is we need to start streaming this. Yeah, it yeah. sounds ridiculous. Um, and um, I have a blog post from Steve Sifus. Sorry if I mispronounced your name, who is one of the PMs on this. <laughs> and um, he explains the thinking of it because I think many of us sees it as Kerberos, it's insecure, it's hard to use, it's ugly, and so on. Why do you add it to something as brilliant as Azure AD? Yeah. But like the reasoning is rather interesting because mm -hmm. Kerberos is a protocol used by millions of applications out there. Yeah. And to migrate all of those to an Azure AD uh, way of authentication would be very hard and very cumbersome and probably mm. stop the development. So that's one of the reasons. Mm, the other reason true. is that they've made it in a way where you can actually apply Azure AD features on Kerberos. Hmm. So conditional access for Kerberos. Uh-huh. So as an example that he gives, and I haven't tried this, but I, I can't wait to do it. Let's say that you're accessing a file share using Kerberos 
with Azure AD authentication, you can enforce MFA on file share access. Pretty nice. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> and yeah. all, everything else, and you get like audit logs, you get all the goodies of Azure AD. You can lift and shift, which we can argue if you should, but you can move your applications to the cloud and you can continue yeah. using the best uh, Active Directory service out there together with your apps and get the best of both worlds. So it's a migration path that somewhat secures it. Like he also says, Kerberos is insecure. And now I'm quoting, Kerberos is insecure because it relies on passwords and humans are bad at keeping passwords secure. But the thing is that you are not allowed to do password authentication when you use Kerberos in Azure AD. Oh. And service principles, they don't have passwords. So they can use it in a secure way. And you can't fall back to NTLM. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so it's a fantastic blog post um, by Steve. So I highly recommend to check it out. And I can't wait to try this because I think this will be a very, very interesting and totally out of the blue feature. But if we've also had other Azure AD news with something I know even less about, Kubernetes. Oh, yes. So there's actually quite several updates in mm -hmm. Azure Kubernetes service. And one of those has to do with Azure AD. And it is related to the fact that previously, when you created a new Azure Kubernetes service cluster, what you would need to have is a local admin user account. And of course, that is not so ideal, and it would be a little harder to manage. And so now uh, AKS has been set up so that you are able to have it only use Azure AD. So when you set up Azure AD integration for AKS, you can just say, hey, I do not want any local accounts at all, and you can disable that feature. So I think definitely an improvement to the security Absolutely. side. Yeah. On the other hand, we also have other updates to AKS. And the second part is uh, certificate rotation. So AKS uses quite a bit of certificates when it's doing like authentication to different parts of the services. And so you could use um, certification authority-based certificates, but you can also use non-CA certificates as well. And then, of course, if you have certificates, you need to rotate them. And in the use case where you use non-CA certificates, you can allow AKS to do that automatically for you. So it will rotate them periodically for you. It's not yet available in all features, but it should be rolled out uh, by the end of February 2022. So quite soon already. And then the third update here is the fact that uh, the node image auto upgrade capability. And that means that because previously uh, you had to go in and manually upgrade the images of the nodes that you had in your AKS cluster. So you have to remember that Azure Kubernetes service is not a full platform, like past service. It's not 
nicely bundled and where everything is managed for you, you still needed to upgrade the images, for example. But now that capability is generally available as well. And you can have the cluster version auto-upgraded when, for example, a new node image becomes uh, available or a new cluster version becomes available. A, a very stupid question, since I've been working with images, not for <laughs> containers, <laughs> but for other things my entire life. Yes. Uh, the, the images, are are they something you create or where do you get the image from? What is it based on? This means the image for the virtual machine itself, so the yep. ones that run the nodes. Mm -hmm. uh, so these are, for example, uh, when a new Kubernetes service mm -hmm. uh, version becomes available. Okay. Yep. And you need to upgrade those and so forth. So there's kind of a few layers where you need to do the upgrading there. That, then it sounds reasonable that you could automate that part. <laughs> yes. I think this is kind of a much weighted <laughs> capability and I'm happy it is now generally it, available. It has, like, because you can run Kubernetes on, on kind of anything. Mm -hmm. Is the auto upgrade available on other platforms? So if you aren't using Azure, have you been able to do the auto upgrades on other platforms previously? I have to say now that I can't remember... Um, mm -hmm. somehow I have a feeling that it hasn't been available in AWS, but anyone who does AWS, please correct me wrong. <laughs> they are but currently it... working on a storage outage. So <laughs> every single AWS person in the world. <laughs> every single one. So yep. um, it hasn't been, like ju just in general, it hasn't been so widely like available in general either. So... It's. I don't think it's been anything that uh, Azure has been very much behind on. And uh, even one of my colleagues who had been working on AWS previously commented that uh, AKS is actually pretty nice with some of its capabilities. <laughs> so, And that, that is kind of high praise from somebody who is yeah. <laughs> used to AWS. Um, I, I probably won't say any of the other comments <laughs> he had about Azure, but... <laughs> And you probably shouldn't mention the person's name because no. that person would be bullied by that person's AWS friends. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we love AWS. It's it's heating the planet. It's good. Alexander loves heat. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> we we on the other hand are using environmentally friendly data centers. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Specifically in Sweden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One out of the 800 data centers. Yeah, Yay. exactly. That, one data center well, at a time. Yeah, exactly. It's one yeah. step. So please save me now. <laughs> yes. Do you want to get saved by talking about Intune? Oh, thank you. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I, I thought you would save me by talking... <laughs> Ensure that I didn't say anything else that was stupid. But let's talk about Intune. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, I, we have had so many releases uh, with some fantastic news over the last weeks. One of the things that is huge in the new feature is the new remote help app. So basically a remote control feature within Microsoft Intune. Uh, up until now, you have been pointed towards TeamViewer 
which have an integration with Intune. But now you will be able to use a first-party app from Microsoft to do remote help. The interesting bit in this is that it's actually a paid service on top of whichever license you have. So even if you have an E5 license and want this additional service, you have to pay that on top of the license. Interesting. Um, <laughs> and and I think that it's politics. I don't think TeamViewer would have been too happy if they were to just use this. It's free. <laughs> we don't mm. need you anymore. Yeah, um, true. And I don't. I also think that a lot of other organizations have remote tools and they wouldn't like to pay for an additional one because they, of course, would have to add it to the price at some point. Uh, but it features a lot of the essential things um, like unmanaged devices, managed devices, role-based access control, UAC integration, monitoring of active sessions, and so on. So it, it's quite cool, and it's now in public preview. We also had a service release on November 15th, where we, we especially got a lot of really cool updates to um, Windows Update and how you configure your insider channels, your feature upgrades within Windows 10 to 11, um, and also updates to the security baselines. So a lot of new things. And um, yeah, that's also something. Custom compliance settings for Windows. And custom compliance is really about conditional access. You can require an, a device to be compliant to your policies uh, before you allow it access to whatever or a user access to anything from that device. Up until now, you have had a fairly, like, you have only had like 10 or 15 options in practice. Things like it's up to date, it doesn't have any malware, uh, it's encrypted, and so on. Now you can do custom settings in Intune. So you can basically, anything you can get out from a JSON file or a PowerShell script, you will be able to report on. Oh. So if, if you want to ensure that you're only allowed to connect uh, from a device which runs a Finnish language pack, you're now awesome. able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about, I could do that because you are guest users in my tenant. <laughs> I think I could do that on Alexander. <laughs> that would be evil. <laughs> well, and with that word, I'm off to write a PowerShell script. <laughs> so that just encouraged you. In a somewhat structured way, I will be doing something I actually like. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of things there. And we also have a new config manager release. I won't go into detail there. Uh, but some of the things I really like is uh, the ability to do implicit uninstall for user collections. Dangerous, but oh, so good. And a lot of other improvements uh, and simplifications of enabling cloud features, especially. And a lot of other things. So, I, I want to hear about load testing. Oh, you want to hear about load testing? I'm not surprised. I, like, I was so excited when I saw this. It was kind I of like similar things, to the... <laughs> I like things that go boom. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of the Chaos 
uh, studio as well. <laughs> exactly. Announcement. Yeah. It's kind of the same, same category at least. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Azure Load Testing is a new service that you can use for load testing your application. As in what, the short description. <laughs> and what does it mean? What can you test? And and what All services right. can you test? All right. So, so this was announced in preview at the end of November. And it is a fully managed service where you can uh, load, load test your uh, environment in Azure that is running, for example, on App Service or Kubernetes or whatever it might be. And how you do that is you create your custom Apache JMeter script, and then you run that. It will run those on the test engine against your application, and then you're able to get out information about how did your application perform. And so pretty, pretty cool service that I get, want to get go out and test. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, but like how much is ready out of the box? How much do you have to write in terms of tests? Or is it already done for you? If I have a web app, can I tell it, do... Th- X amount of thousand requests from wherever and see what happens. I have to say I haven't tested this hands-on yet. So mm-hmm. What I understand is that there are some kind of very simple scenarios set there, but then you have this flexibility to really like write your own script of yeah. what needs to be done. And then you are able to tell it like how many users, etc. And because like normally you, if you would set up testing infrastructure, you would like, for example, put up some virtual machines where you run the test engine itself. And then if you're generating a whole lot of load, you would need a lot of those. So yeah. all that is packaged into the service, the infrastructure that is required for that. So that will come out of the box. Cool. Yes. What do you want to continue with? I, I, I know that you want to talk about <laughs> the networking bits as well. Well, but we could go to remote desktop. <laughs> well, th- that that's a quick one, uh, but it's an <laughs> important one. Like, and and I I know that, like, I work quite a lot with end-user computing, so Citrix, mm-hmm. AVD, Windows three sixty five, whatever. And and a lot of the people I meet say, okay, but then the endpoint shouldn't matter, but it, mm-hmm. it matters quite a lot. <laughs> Because there's so many things built into the endpoint and the clients that actually matters. So in this case, if you upgrade to the latest version of the uh, remote desktop client on Windows, you will, apart from getting a lot of vulnerabilities fixed, uh, also get a ton of improvements for Teams. So if you're running Teams inside Azure Virtual Desktop, you should most definitely upgrade because you get a lot of things in terms of reliability for cameras, screens, volume, microphone, <laughs> and <laughs> everything. That, and does it that it doesn't stop in the middle of a call. I, I think all of those should be enough to get you to upgrade. Definitely. And now I, I will continue with things I know nothing about. And and I feel much more comfortable asking you than asking Alexander. Uh-huh. <laughs> Postgre, PostgreSQL. I don't even know how to pronounce that in English. Uh, well, I might do it wrong as well since I finish, <laughs> but PostgreSQL, that's how I would say it. That sounded much better than the way yes. I said it. Thank you. <laughs> 
<laughs> so within the Azure database for PostgreSQL, uh, previously we had the single server, which is pretty much like you have a single database that you set up. And you can kind of think of it as an equivalent to, let's say, Azure SQL, the single database option on that side. So pretty much it's quite packaged. You don't have a lot of customization options that you can put in there. And so what has come in after that is the flexible server option, and that is now generally available. And the, this flexible server option, as the name might imply, it gives you a little more flexibility with the configuration and customization that you might need to do. And so, for example, if you have existing PostgreSQL workloads, for example, it might be more likely that you can migrate them here. Uh, you're able to have like network isolation, encryption for data at rest, and so forth. So you have a lot more uh, capabilities in it than what you have in the single server. And uh, kind of out of the box, you can also uh, select this to be set up in one zone, in one availability zone, or you can have this highly available across different availability zones. The other thing that came uh, kind of in the same time frame as this announcement of the flexible server being GA was the uh, also the announcement about the geo-redundant backups in flexible server being in public preview. So then we have this capability of having the zone redundancy for the database, but then you can also take geo-redundant backups of that database and get a little more uh, just high availability. Uh, why am I at loss for the correct word? Redundancy. I have no idea anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I lost the train of the thought would, here. Would you now need to full, full over to the next zone? Yes. Yes. And, yes, and I, please give and me I, my backup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that That's the name of this episode. Please give me my backup. Uh, I, I think the person that have written the blog post about the PostgreSQL, he really likes it. It's obvious. Yes. It's the most yes. wanted database. And apparently yes. you... I don't... DBMS? Database... Management service? Yeah, something Where? of the year. Uh, I don't did, didn't even uh, know that it and like, could give that to a database. Yeah, I think... I think it is kind of like one of the most used non-Microsoft SQL databases yeah. out there. It's it's used even more widely than MySQL. My my last bits before you get to talk about networking in Azure, which Yay. I know that you love. Uh, <laughs> some security things. We have two new really huge things in Defender for Endpoint. One is that you now can use, let's say that you don't use Microsoft Intune to manage your devices. First, you probably made a wrong choice at some point, but <laughs> I, I won't judge. Uh, but you still want to use Defender for Endpoint. You can now use Defender for Endpoint to manage the security settings of that device, even though it's managed by another management tool, enabling you not to being forced into the entire Microsoft ecosystem, but just leveraging uh, the security features. 
And the other bit is that we, since yesterday actually, are now able not just to monitor managed endpoints like we have been able to do for quite a while. We have been able to uh, protect network get info from network devices such as switches. We can now also get that information from IoT devices. So printers, Hmm. cameras, smart TVs and such. And what Microsoft is doing here is quite interesting because they are combining the endpoint protection bits, so the EDR, endpoint detection and response, with the NDR, the network detection and response capabilities. That is quite unique and very interesting. So we'll see where that goes. And I think you will get quite an interesting insights in your networks if you turn this on. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I also want to just emphasize a little tiny thing. Uh, Do do you use anything from Ubiquiti in terms of networking equipment? Unify? No. No, Not that I know of. (laughs) then, Then we should talk about that as well. All right, uh, but Ubiquiti and Unify is is if like it's it's an up and coming prosumer network equipment provider. Uh, I use it, it exclusively in my network, and they were hacked and blackmailed last year, and they had a whistleblower Oops. stating that this has happened, and in Unify or Ubiquiti don't want to talk about it, uh, and everyone had to. You like change passwords and whatever. Turned out the whistleblower were the hacker. Oh crap. So it was an insider job. And this man blackmailed his employer, stating that he was a whistleblower. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Um and FBI were onto this. Um And uh, it's a fantastic story in itself. But uh, just what happened was that Ubiquiti lost $4 billion over that hack due to uh, a stock price falling. So we'll see what this this person... (laughs) And and also, yeah. And he... Apparently, he demanded $2 million in ransom. And it turned out that it costed the company $4 billion. So Hmm. (laughs) be aware of insiders. Yes. Keep your source code under control Mm -hmm. and minimize the access permissions anyone in your company have. But especially, and this is the, I think, the most essential thing to protect from insider threats, keep your employees happy. A happy employee won't backstab you in most cases. That is so true. Yeah. And not at all speaking about backstabbing, (laughs) networking in Azure. Yes. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the generally available VPN gateway NAT, so network address translation. And so all the time that you've been working with Azure, whenever you plan your networking, the one thing that you've had to like kind of keep strictly from the very beginning is to make sure that you do not have any overlapping address spaces. Yeah. And sometimes it can even happen that, well, you might have like different third parties that you're connecting with uh, on the networking level. 
And lo and behold, they have some overlapping <laughs> IP addresses. That sometimes happens. But luckily, now we have a solution for this. And this is the VPN Gateway NAT. And what this enables us to do is to make these um, NAT rules either in a static way or in a dynamic way. So in a static way, you're just telling, well, uh, this address space gets NAT natted, (laughs) 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 translated to this IP address and so forth. So, or you can have it set up in a dynamic way. And you can just find this in your VPN gateway. There is a setting for NAT rules. And in there, you can just create the rule sets that you are required in your environment. Makes things a little more kind of like not so you bump into something and then you just need to do massive changes to make everything work. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, when you have a, a partner company and you tell them that, well, I was here first, change your IP addresses. That <laughs> <laughs> Not going to work. <laughs> no. And, and this is also a thing that I have never encountered that situation because I don't work with it. Mm-hmm. But when now when you say it, it, it makes a ton of sense. And and being forced to synchronize <laughs> your IP ranges with everyone you work with. Yeah. I understand if that is somewhat challenging. So Yeah. And it takes some time. You need to gather yeah. like what are your like what's free? What's free over there? <laughs> and then you're like, okay, let's grab these ones. Yeah. Um I think we did good. We uh, yeah. ran over time, so we are apparently able to do that without Alexander. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> it never happened before. No. But uh, thank you so much for for being here and uh, teaching me new things. And I know that we will revisit DevOps and uh, continue to learn. Yeah. And uh, on that very kind bombshell, or whatever Clarkson says, Alexander does this way better than I do. <laughs> it's time do it. to end. <laughs> so we will be I think back one more time for Christmas and we'll yeah. probably do a take a look in the crystal bowl and, and see what we believe 2022 will bring us and uh, what we think about 2021 because we're closing in on end of year oh my <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and with that thank you for this and we'll soon be back Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Abitson, Simon Binder, and Haini Hilmarinen. If you have any feedback, questions, or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at needinbintech.com.